Welcome to a University of Bath IPR policy podcast. Um, good evening to you all. Um, it's a huge pleasure to be with you. And um, as is ever the case, it's always um, a huge privilege to be asked to talk at such events. Um, I will start by saying um, I'm not an academic, um, nor am I emergency planning expert. Um, there are plenty of people out there with a great deal more expertise than mine. Um, but what I will share with you um, is my thoughts on public health leadership um, in the context of my own experience. Um, and that experience has been gained working alongside some of the most incredible people um, in this sector. So I'm, I'm happy to share our collective expertise uh, through the lens of public health leadership. The conversation this evening is timely. Um, the brilliance of public health has really uh, been brought to the fore. Um, I don't think there's ever been a time where we have heard uh, the words public health spoken so frequently within our popular press, and nor has there been a time when we've talked about the fantastic work of national, regional and local public health teams with such accolade and recognition for the work that they're doing. And I am certainly privileged to be part of that. The world at the moment is facing a national threat and it's an international threat. And what we are doing together is working um, on this through many strands of work and through many um, pieces of policy and changes. And it's a fast moving environment that we're all working hard on. So I'm gonna not be talking about COVID extensively this evening, but it'll be hard to get through the next 35 minutes or so without a mention, I'm sure you'll appreciate. And I'm also not gonna be focusing exclusively um, on the events in 2018 around the nerve agent incident in Salisbury. However, this will also get a mention. And we'll be talking about it in terms of using this as a demonstration of the public health leadership that took place and talking about public health um, leadership in action. So that's what it's not. Um, what it will be is an interpretation of public health leadership in times of crisis, the strength, the rigour, the evidence that we draw on and the discipline that public health brings. Its strengths, the challenges and why it matters so much. And also the areas where public health is part of our lives without us even realising that public health is the factor that's driving those things. Public health is broad and varied. And if we could move on to the next slide. We often talk about the variety of public health and we talk about the art and the science of public health. And we have many things that are business as usual and the things that we're working on day by day in, in all factors. Um, but generally, we also have things that happen at short notice that need fast response. And unlike Forrest in his box of chocolates, we never know what we, we never quite know what we're going to be getting. Next slide, please. Um, I will say I've only got a few slides. I'm not going to be saying next slide, please, all night. Um, I'm sure we've all had our fill of that. Um, what we define as disasters comes in two main categories, the natural disasters and the man-made. Natural disasters are those that are naturally occurring. This could be earthquakes, flooding, bushfires. We're seeing an increase in natural disasters from extreme weather events caused by environmental change. These are more frequent and more varied and the impact is greater. The aftermath is often devastating. 
um, California most recently provides a recent extraordinary example of the types of extremes that happen within our weather, where we've seen raging wild bushfires quickly change to snowfall that has paralysed the entire state. Pandemic and infectious disease also sits here in this natural phenomenon, such as COVID being one of them. Um, Man-made disasters also uh, are those that we need to work on. And in this space, we look at warfare, um, terrorism and structural collapse, all things that we would need to look at in terms of disaster management. So a big part of this is leadership and how we lead through crisis is vital. Um, and, and our approach to this is something that we spend a lot of time training on and practicing. Public health leadership happens across many things, huge disasters um, such as those just mentioned, but it also has a huge role to play in many factors and just our ordinary social um, lives. It's a big driver for social change in terms of looking across the way we live our lives and also behaviour change. As Matt talked about in the introduction, my early career was within HIV um, and the HIV uh, sector at the height of the, the, uh, the epidemic, uh, the pandemic was um, an interesting place to be. It was a place of learning. Um, it was HIV and AIDS had been around when I started working for about 13, 14 years. Um, from that early diagnosis in the early 80s, I sort of joined the sector in, in the mid 90s, so just after um, the first combination therapy started to come on board. But treatments at that stage were quite brutal um, and quite difficult to adhere to. And people experienced huge stigma. So it wasn't just the impact of having a HIV diagnosis that caused difficulty for individuals who was diagnosed. It was the huge social impact as well in terms of loss of jobs, loss of family and friends, and also loss of tenancies because of the stigma that was around it and how unknown it was. So the complexities of some of the things we're working on isn't just about dealing with the core crisis as it presents itself, it's the associated factors. HIV took a long time for us to really understand and we're still learning at the moment in terms of its uh, genomic, genomic structures, um, but also um, how HIV uh, affects the human body. And this is similar to any new condition and COVID would forward this, um, scientists moved very quickly to get an understanding of COVID so that we could start testing for it, potentially start working on treatments and as has been in the news this week, uh, the hope of a vaccine. It took longer with HIV um, and it, part of that was um, about what we knew about it, the kind of communities um, that it affected, looking at um, how people were more at risk. And we're also seeing this with COVID, there's huge similarities. We're seeing people disproportionately affected by COVID. And we need to think about the social conditions in terms of how these differences occur and really try and understand them. Any pandemic, um, any infectious disease is complex. Working with people living with and affected by HIV um, was the sort of start of my career. And it was that that exposed me, I suppose, to, to health inequalities and my first introduction to them. And it was really the baseline for what has been uh, my interest throughout my career in terms of tackling inequalities and dealing with vulnerability, um, not just how it presents itself, but understanding where those vulnerabilities are formed within our communities. 
and how communities and individuals deal with those and how we build greater resilience for people, but also about how we view groups. Um, I've, I've done work where um, the risk of harm of antisocial behaviour has been at play, and particularly in young people um, who are seen as perpetrators of antisocial behaviour, but actually when you look behind the surface and what's really behind that is they're not perpetrators at all, there's criminal exploitation and actually what there is is a huge amount of vulnerability. So our, our role in public health is really to look behind the, the presenting vulnerabilities and understand the root cause of those and how we can really make a change to, to tackle those. Part of public health, in my view, and public health leadership is about working with the most vulnerable. Whether it's the fight for equality, about preventing exploitation, or whether it is about preventing risks, both within our public and private spaces. And we, we hear a lot on the news um, about violent crime. So whether it is about knife crimes and, and gangs and how young people are recruited into gangs, or whether it is about domestic uh, violence and abuse, control and coercion that happens very much in our private spaces, the very spaces that should be our safe place. But also understanding the, the consequences of these issues. So we know about 50% of children that are on child protection registers have domestic abuse as a factor. So how we think about public health within the context of safeguarding and really truly protect, protecting every aspect of our population's um, health and well-being in that, in that very broadest sense. So for me, it, it isn't confined to lifestyle behaviours, um, but we have the we need to, but also has a huge role in understanding the risk within the places that we live and work, our networks and how we live. I avoid statements like lifestyle choices, as choice in itself can be debated. For example, people living on limited income and making choices between heating their homes or feeding their children have a very different access to choice than somebody who's independently wealthy. So public health leadership is about how we bring the golden threads of how our communities live and what the foundations of our society is, really understand the need and make sure that we're able to build services with our communities for our communities. COVID has really shone a light on health inequalities um, and the disproportionate impact on different community groups. Um, this is a topic of conversation um, that is ongoing. Conversations have turned um, a lot to what it will be like in the post-COVID world. And COVID has been sort of labelled as the cause for issues. I personally can't remember living in utopia prior to COVID. Um, we were dealing with things like deprivation, health inequalities, violence, um, poor health whether it's through um, disease or whether it's through lifestyle, all of these things existed. We also had, we also see higher cases of certain illnesses amongst different groups. All of these health inequalities were present prior to COVID, but COVID has certainly exacerbated some of these issues. And what we will need to be doing over the next weeks is think about how we lead into recovery and start that planning to take us forward. What we also understand about COVID is many protective factors have been put in place to interrupt the, the chain of infection and to keep our communities safe. 
we have a set of new rules that we now live by and obviously we're in lockdown at the moment so those rules are at their strongest at the moment and the importance of compliance to those rules but we also know for some those very protective factors will have actually um, exacerbated risk for example in the case of mental health those people that are used to routine need certain touches in terms of their support networks and we know that these protective factors for COVID will have made life quite difficult for many in our communities, where a change to routine um, can be really, really harmful and hard to manage for some people. There are also reports and a newspaper um, articles around domestic abuse and headlines such as lockdown being the, the biggest nightmare for victims and how being trapped with your perpetrator is bringing increased fear. We talk a lot and we hear a lot in the news about the economic impact that COVID will have and those that are already living in deprivation will feel this most. We see this play out. All of these things are the focus of public health. Only about 10% of our health is dependent on healthcare and services and the rest is about genetics and the way we live, the networks that we mix with and the complexities just of our lives. We need to prioritise these things that influence our ability to stay well and healthy weight, not smoking, reducing alcohol are all part of that. But we also know people living under threat, those who are lonely, those without a job or a secure tenancy will not be able to prioritise healthier lifestyles. So our starting point has to be everyone has a home, a job and a friend. So we've talked a little bit about the job of public health being a large one um, and um, I'm not quite sure where the parameters of it are really. I've never quite been able to work out uh, where the job ends. As a director of public health, I had about 144 um, strands of work um, that I looked after with my fabulous team um, in Wiltshire. And what public health has done throughout history from sanitation through to vaccination to the introduction of seatbelts um, being compulsory in cars. I was a child of the 70s and I certainly remember rolling around the back seat of my family car without being unchecked. Um, and the smoking ban, um, the list goes on. And not everybody knows that these interventions are public health interventions. As part of the day job, all of these things interplay and we put in place interventions around all sorts of programmes that are there to improve health outcomes and wellbeing for our populations. And we're also one of many agencies that show up uh, when major crises happen, whether that be pandemic flood, flooding, chemical spills, fires and sometimes the unthinkable, um, such as in March 2018. At this point, um, I was the Director of Public Health in Wiltshire and remember clearly the call coming in that would set the wheels in motion, um, that would set up the work programme really for, for the next many months. What was revealed over the next few days around this incident after following, after finding um, Sergei and Yulia um, on that bench in Salisbury, which I'm sure you have all read about in the media, um, we would find out over the coming days that it was a nerve agent um, that had been used on Sergei, who had been an ex-Russian uh, spy. And it was unthinkable that something like this could happen in peacetime anywhere in the world, um, in England and within uh, the beautiful medieval city of Salisbury. And it, it led to the eyes of the world um, on, that, on that small city 
and lots of facts that none of us um, particularly knew. I know I didn't, but during the course of this, obviously that spire is 123 metres high um, and it is indeed the tallest spire in the UK. Every crisis starts with sense making, understanding the situation, the hazards and defining the risks. The part of the incident was intense and, and fast paced and changing and there, there was lots of strands happening at the same time. The emergency phase in, in any crisis is influenced by the situation and the relationships that existed before the incident occurs. Those of us that work in public health, we're part of a system of training and exercising and practice um, in readiness um, for events taking place. And we practice our response on all sorts of potential issues. These sessions can feel elaborate and over the top, and the exercise takes you to the edges of what you think are reality to make sure we're ready for any eventuality or at least have the transferable skills that we can draw on in any situation. What I've learned over the last two or three years, however, that nothing is elaborate and fact is certainly stranger than fiction. The systematic approach to planning and practice means that when incidents happen, we have what is needed in place. There is a, there's a great guy who we work with in Wiltshire as part of the local resilience forum there, and he always talks about us dealing with the unusual in the usual way. And it almost became our mantra when 2018 started, and with this incident, it was certainly unusual and that many of us had a great deal of experience in dealing with incidents of varying kind, but this was an unusual one. However, our core skill set was what was needed. We went through the usual process and followed the incident through. In any situation, it's important that we mobilise early. And again, this comes down to strong leadership and you mobilise early based on evidence. This will evolve, it is certainly not static, and you need to be able to act. There are often concurrent issues within any incident. It won't just be the public health factors. There could be infrastructural damage, service disruption, business closures, economic risk, and police investigation. In 2018, I think we just about had all of these and they were all as important as each other, but public health takes primacy and the protection of life is paramount. And that is what stayed core throughout the incident. 2018, like many major incidents, had multiple agencies working on the issue, all with a slightly different set of objectives. But there is a collective aim. Because there are multiple strands in play, there needs to be distributed leadership. So many of us had a variety of leadership roles within there. So all of the expertise from the room is brought together and each voice of each of those experts is heard equally. The hierarchy within those voices leaves the room. This needs to happen without conflict and with respect and to value each person's perspective and what that brings to the conversation. This worked really well in 2018 as we worked without ego, rank or self-interest. There were 27 agencies involved, all bringing their expertise, identifying the risks from their specialism and offering the mitigation, each were heard and there was consistent collaboration throughout. Where everyone was valued and the voices of many were assimilated through a core set of processes and principles, all moving the response forward. 
There are, of course, no decision makers in the room, and certainly um, the chairs of the various strands of work going on conducted um, the information as it comes through. So the decisions were made um, that drew all of that information together, but no decision was made in isolation and then without rationale. So adaptive leadership also comes into play. Situations aren't static and therefore the approach has to be agile. There's also an interplay between the internal decision-making and what is happening within the response room, but with it also with external engagement. I, as you see, I'm not a great fan of words on slides. Um, I tend to use pictures only. Um, and the key thing we talk about in public health a lot is the public health paradox. There isn't a picture for that. So if I say this in my native Birmingham tongue, it's paradox. So this is the picture for paradox. I've been quoted now three different times where everybody's using paradox for paradox. It seems to have caught on. Your greatest skill will be communicating the messages that appear contradictory. And while certainly in 2018, um, a lot of our messages through good evidence um, to the wider public was the fact that the, the risk to the public was low. And this was very much a truthful message and one that was well publicized. But this message was going out to a backdrop of soldiers arriving on the streets of Salisbury to start the decontamination process wearing hazmat suits. So it's how do we communicate by assimilating what could be contradictory or paradoxical information. The incident is live and changing and therefore communication, particularly with those directly impacted is essential. Gaps in information get filled with by imagination and this can lead to much greater anxiety and impact. It would be an error to operate a response without it within a professional vacuum at the exclusion of external stakeholders. And this has to in include the communities themselves. Moving from response into recovery, um, I led the community engagement aspects and chaired um, the health and wellbeing uh, cell. Recovery can take a long time and the practical aspects such as bringing services back, back on board and returning buildings to use will happen far quicker than the pace of human healing. There's plenty of lit literature that speaks about recovery starting for people two to five years post the incident. So it's not immediate. People aren't getting to the start line in terms of their recovery whilst the incident is live. It's only after reflection that they can really start to think about this. Therefore, you have to plan long-term. Recovery structures need to stay in place to support this. Recovery takes a long time, requires a different skill set and focus to that of response. And for a while, response and recovery need to run in parallel as you need to be planning for recovery from the beginning of the incident. It's not something that starts when response is over. It starts at the very beginning. You have to move swiftly between the different requirements of looking through evidence and drawing on opinion to that of needed to work alongside a community in distress and provide information within their context so they can make sense of what is happening to them and around them. I've been criticised for getting involved in this element um, during 2018 and being too personally available to people that were affected and impacted by this. But I needed to be part of the community to inform them during response so they knew what would happen. And to be honest, on reflection, I'd do exactly the same if it was to happen again. You cannot appear in the height of a disaster and then walk away just because the apparent dust has settled. 
people are left with a lot of emotional rubble that will take much longer to brush away. Irrespective of what the incident is, whether natural phenomenon such as pandemics or flood, HIV, flu pandemic of 2009, SARS in 2003, incidents of bio-warfare or terrorism such as the anthrax attacks in 2001, Grenfell, the Manchester bombing 7-7, the element of, that is most scrutinised will be leadership. Charles Steen, who's the Vice Dean of Public Health and Community Engagement in America, talks about the issue of responsibility and blame and how these don't get enough emphasis in training, but are seldom forgotten about in practice. Blame often follows crisis. This needs to become part of our learning and we need to assess ourselves in training and exercises through the lens of others and for, through this be able to learn more about the gaps we leave and better place to mitigate them. Nor do we put enough emphasis on understanding the complexity of recovery and the different set of skills needed here and that it is likely to be the same workforce or be exhausted from the response and need to be re-energised to occupy, to occupy the space for far longer. Public health leadership has a role in ensuring civil contracting is in place during the response and we've seen some of this um, during the COVID response. Um, you know, we've seen Swindon, for example, talking about we're all in this together, that civil contracting, bringing their community with them around their, their comms plan. And that has been replicated up and down the country where we've seen really good examples of working with communities so that this is about all of us, become part of it, become part of the solution and making sure that the community are part of every detail of this. And within that, they also need to be part of the solutions for recovery. This will enable a tiered approach to public protection and include communities in the process iteratively. So this is an ongoing dialogue that happens throughout. This then opens the door as there will be established relationships to that collective rebuild of communities and support individuals with the focus on people. There'll be plenty of eyes on the buildings and services and the economy but public health spans the health, place and economic regeneration of both response and recovery and puts improved health and wellbeing at the, as the outcome through this collaborative leadership. Above all is compassionate leadership. The King's Fund have recently published on this subject. Their focus is a little bit different in terms of the fact it's, it's more about health services and care. Um, but the principles apply to working with communities with the focus on inclusion and building connections across boundaries. But compassion also needs to form part of our professional interactions. High pressured environments lead to high pressured behaviours. And knowing the people you are likely to work with on a major incident ahead of it and investing in those relationships will pay dividends um, afterwards and forgive a lot um, when you're under the pressure of a response. I remember speaking to a friend um, during the height of the 2018 um, first response um, and just saying the only people I see are the people in that room and I feel like I'm going mad and she said to me you will know you've spent far too much time in that room when you start fancying them. Thankfully we must have got out just in time because I can safely say that I didn't get to that point although I have made some friends for life. When you're working so intensely with people for such a period of time the bonds are made um, and I hope unbreakable. Beyond this compassion is compassion to self. 
I worked on this incident, incident for a long time, um, about 11 months really before I took a break. And the first few weeks were really, really intense. On week three, not really being home for anything other than a quick shower, a change, a nap, and to just grab a change of clothes. I ran in one day and my son, who was about 12 at the time, was sat at the table. Since he was little, we'd always talked about love feeling like your heart's gonna go boom. And it, it was something that we'd done probably since he was about the age of three. As I ran into the house, we exchanged a high and I grabbed what I'd ran in the house for. And as I left, um, I got to the kitchen door and I went, love you, boom. And he looked me square in the eye and said, no, boom. It was at that moment I realised I'd been far too absent, but there was nothing I could do to step back into my personal life. He simply turned back to his homework. And in that moment, I left the house knowing it was going to be a little while before I was going to be able to repair the damage that the incident had done within my private space. Working in crisis management is intense and those doing it now and there are a cast of tens of thousands that are working on this day in, day out and it's seven days a week. You, you don't get weekends, days bleed into each other, you don't know where one day ends and another begins and often within this intensity the days can be 18 hours long, they're not short days and the only break you'll get is the rest between two deep breaths. In these times, you have to know and hang on to the fact that it will come to an end. Think about and plan for your own recovery as the response phase moves away, building time for your own crash because it will come. I took a week out um, at about month 11 and for that week, um, I cried and I cleaned my house um, and it was my way of getting through it, it cleaning my house was my therapy, and um, you will have other choices, walking, screaming, whatever it might be, and preparing to be aware of your own needs and really planning for these, and be ready to start your own recovery. Make sure you look after yourself while you're looking after everyone else. We can't look after anyone else if we're not putting ourselves, giving ourselves at least some of that care. What we do in public health is hugely important, often misrepresented, often misunderstood, and very frequently not given the praise it deserves. But public health leadership is driving forward the health and improvement of our populations in so many ways. And I'm really glad that I get the chance to work and be part of that. Thank you all for listening. Uh, thanks very much, Tracy. That was... Um really extraordinary and you've given me an almost impossible job of uh, trying to respond to that. I mean it's kind of um, pointless, you've said it all. Um, I was frantically scribbling notes while you were talking and I guess um, where I started was thinking through the kind of uh, leadership, what, what leadership might have meant from the kinds of things I was taught at school, the, the kind of the, the lone hero uh, model of leadership and uh, yeah sure I guess that still has a place. Uh, but I guess what you've described is a much more nuanced, sophisticated approach. Um, core to this is skill and competence at the central public health role. I mean, to be a good leader, uh, you have to know what you're doing. Um, and uh, you've demonstrated that absolutely uh, overwhelmingly. But I think in addition to this technical skill is a set of much more human skills that I think you, you really, really brought out. 
kindness and compassion, inclusivity, humility. Uh, it is essential to be able to admit when one doesn't know something. It is essential to be able to admit when one is wrong and to learn from that. The self-reflection and learning that come from uh, that kind of humility is essential to being a better and improving leader. Um, you talked about the public health paradox, um, emphasizing the importance of communication. And uh, I'm quite heavily involved in the response to COVID-19 and it is absolutely essential. It is hugely important that uh, we as public health professionals really think very hard about the ways in which we communicate things and absolutely try to pick out these paradoxes. Um, I'm trying to get uh, communicate Rose's prevention paradox uh, pretty much every day, talking about the, the ways in which um, actions that might seem irrelevant to an individual soon add up and amplify across a population to become really important, powerful uh, things that need to be done. And I guess that as we all grapple with the inherent uncertainty in these problems, the most urgent and pressing of which right now is of course COVID-19, but there, there will always be problems like this. This is not the last pandemic we're all gonna have to deal with. It's essential that we listen as well as talk and as you so movingly described, we also need to look after ourselves as well as others. I wrote down one of the things you said, and I'd like to conclude with that. Conclude with that. You said we worked without ego, rank, or self-interest, and everyone was valued. The lessons from this, I think, could be applied to many leaders around the world, uh, not just those of us working in public health. So I'd just like to thank you again, uh, Tracy, for a really fantastic talk and um, certainly inspiring and challenging me um, to try and do my job a bit better. Thanks very much. Thank, thank you, Harry. Um, and thank you, let me add my thanks uh, to Harry's, uh, Tracy, for your talk. Um, so we have time for questions. Do please uh, be sending questions in. I've got a stack of questions, so I am going to, um, I'm gonna ask some questions. Let me just see. Okay, um, we've got a question here that's come in, but first of all, I just wanted to pick up on something you said, um, Tracy, which was about, um, well, it reminded me of something Richard Horton, the, um, the editor of The Lancet, has, has described COVID as not a pandemic, but as a syndemic, um, talking about um, the fact that there are these kind of biological and social interactions, and that really struck me that what you were saying is, is quite along a similar lines that actually there are all these public health issues and inequalities in health uh, along socioeconomic lines. Um, and those were all there before COVID and they are still all there now. And it's this kind of interaction, which is um, we're seeing that show up in, in the way in which different groups of people are suffering more. Um, so I just wondered whether, yeah, you could just ex expand on that. I mean, presumably you agree with that kind of diagnosis of this uh, syndemic rather than pandemic. Yeah, um, I read that article, Matt, and um, it, it really struck me. And I think it is the conversation um, that we need to have more of in terms of health isn't a separate entity um, to our lives. It isn't over there. It's part of us and it's got lots of different influences. Um, and 
I, I talked about the fact that I really struggle with the, the notion of lifestyle choice. Um, and because whatever decisions we make about our lives, there are all sorts of factors that influence that. Um, and some of them we have greater control of than others. Um, and that, that's everything from the amount of exercise we take to the kind of food we eat. Um, but all of that is also influenced by um, the place in which we live. I mean, I certainly know, I, I grew up in the Midlands. I moved to Wiltshire back in 2003. Um, and moving the 92 miles I did, I put 11 years on my life. I mean, obviously they won't show themselves because the first 30 years of my life um, I spent in the place that was obviously going to be taking years off my, my life expectancy and indeed the years I was spending good health. There's something quite wrong about that in terms of the fact that where we live is going to determine not only the length of our life but the quality of our life um, and it's what we can do not only to close that gap but to eradicate it. Um, so it's about this, for me, to have, we need to have really ambitious conversations about that. Health inequalities are unjust um, and the way they present themselves and the way they play out are unjust. So, yeah, that article for me said everything we need to be talking about at the moment in terms of that interaction between our health, the pandemic and indeed our own personal lives. I think it's I mean, it's really shone a light for the whole country on you know these existing inequalities and so hopefully that's something that will you know be taken forward uh, and be able to be addressed a bit more effectively um so actually it, it chimes in with a question we've got here um that came in so thank you tracy for a wonderful presentation this is somebody working with the new york city education system um trying to foster partnerships within the communities that can improve access to essential services like mental health um, and this is just wondering, do you have any advice how to successfully outreach um, within communities to try and improve that access? This is a conversation we were only having yesterday uh, with, within the team, actually, in terms of how we do community engagement. We immediately professionalise everything. We use our language, we use our resources. And within that, we then want to engage with communities on our terms, whereas that needs to be flicked on its head and we need to be working with communities on their terms. And actually, it's about them inviting us in, helping them to recognise the needs within that community and then working with them for the solution. So it comes from within and how we can get away from over-professionalising we do and we do this we we over-professionalise and we over-medicalise things and within that that in itself becomes a barrier so it's about how we bring things down and um, become part of that that community leadership for making a change within places rather than going to them and doing it to them um, so it, it's a huge shift um, and it's not an easy one um, but it is something about changing the narrative that we have in that place. I think that uh, that really strikes a chord with me thinking about dealing with kind of socioeconomic inequalities or um, by race and, and whether this is in um, access to higher education or, or whatever it is, the sense that actually what we can't be doing is going in and like, we're the people going to come in and fix this problem, but actually that engagement, that community uh, getting alongside and, and that co-production, I suppose, of, of, of getting people's experience and their inputs into the solutions rather than coming from the outside and just trying to impose, right, here's how, you know, 
we're going to fix this like that. Um, so it's really good, um, interesting to hear you say that. There's another question here I'll just put to you, Tracy. Um, it's slightly different, just going to the, um, the Novichok as an incident that took all the attention um, of, of yourself in public health in Wiltshire and your colleagues. And when that happened, um, how, what happened to all the other agenda items on your list, you know, for public health in Wiltshire? Um, how, you know, did you find that this was a source of stress or did you find yourself being able to shut out these other things that you might have been, you know, should have, you know, on, on another day, if that never happened, you'd have been working through this list of other priorities. How, how did that kind of play out? Really well, if I'm honest, um, I, I've, I've said it many times, um, and I'm sure every director of would say the same thing, that they've got the best team, um, but I know I did have the best team, um, without question. And um, the, the team was incredibly self-motivated, and yes, a huge amount of our time was put on the incident, um, but the team sort of split itself um, into two. So focus on business as usual and focus on the incident and there's a rotation on depending on prioritisation. So things moved along, uh, things carried on, all of the interventions and all of the uh, programmes that we had um, carried on running. Um, I was absent from that, so I definitely proved myself to be surplus to requirements because they all just got on with it. Um, so it, 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 it worked incredibly well and that is about the professionalism of the people that work there and the skills that people bring but more than that and the thing that I, I've worked um, in several sort of local uh, public health um, places and now obviously within a region and the one thing that is consistent in everywhere I work that everybody works in public health cares and therefore people always go above and beyond and they will put in the extra why they need to um, and it's how we recognise and value that amongst that workforce and um, that is the key. So, yeah, it, it, it just carried on. It's great. It's, uh, I think that's, uh, that leads nicely on to another um, question, just thinking about that caring for people, you know, within the team who are responding. Uh, there's a question here that says, um, hello from Canada. Um, and the question asks, you know, given that so much of public of the public response to crisis is emotional, um, how do you prepare to manage the emotional reactions that shape the way the public can react to um, and adhere to public health recommendations? I suppose it's the, there's along with that there's um, the emotional you know response of the team as well. So how do you kind of prepare um, both those things? Um. It's honesty, um, and I, I think it's being as honest as, as you can within the parameters that you have to work. There was a lot about this incident whilst it was live that couldn't be shared. Um, and you, you have to build up trust quite quickly with people um, so that when they're asking questions that you can't answer, you can say, I can't answer that, but this is the outcome. But they trust you enough to leave that. So there's a gap in information, but they trust what you're telling them. Um, I was really fortunate because I did so much of the community engagement stuff personally. I built those relationships up right from the beginning of the response all the way through. So each business that was affected, each community group that was affected, I was able to get to know and work alongside. And, um, you know, the one of the main sites we would meet in one of the lounges and have 
the gatherings because that was the other thing you couldn't do it in public spaces because you didn't know who was going to be joining you um, so it's how you have those conversations and build enough trust that people understand why you can't tell them certain things but you know that you're telling them the truth in that um, it's also about expressing your own fears you know I'm never afraid to say I don't know or I'm tired or um, I'm struggling with this and I did that and I had those open conversations with people I was supporting and also within the team um, who, who were tired and of course do I stop you know parents become ill our teenagers need our help um, the dog's ill we're trying to support neighbours, all of the stuff that we normally do and care about. And then you come into work and being asked to give 200% every day. That's tough. Um, and it's about recognising people's breaking point and saying, you need to now. Um, and again, with your team, it's a little bit different because I'd worked with my team for a long time. Um, you know, I don't, I'd only been a director of public health a short time, but I've been in the team a long time. So the relationship existed. So that's just already there. And I think progress only has moved to the best place of trust. And, and that's key. But with communities, it's relationship really quickly. Thank you. Thank you. There's um, another question here that is thinking more about the kind of um, COVID-19 situation and this reconciling between, you know, public health and government having to reconcile uh, the, the measures that we've got to put in place, I guess the kind of, you know, the lockdown and the restrictions. Um, and the kind of impacts that they have on these pre-existing um, health and social inequalities. Because uh, obviously, I guess the COVID infection itself has a disproportionate impact depending on these factors, but so does, you know, the lockdown. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, what, what's your kind of view on um, just, I mean, it's, <laughs> I'm not going to ask you to give an answer or say, okay, you know, how to, how to solve all these problems, but just... I don't know, how do you reflect on um, that difficulty and um, yeah, where your kind of experience can, can play in? Yeah, I think with any situation like this, um, priority has to go somewhere and you have to deal with the thing that's going to do the greatest harm to the greatest number and that needs to be your focus. Um, but what happens is there is a perception then that everything else has sort of fallen away and it hasn't. Systems are working incredibly hard um, to make sure that, that the needs of everybody are being met. And yes, COVID is, um, taken, is in the foreground at the moment, but there is a lot of work going on. And, you know, I, I, I work within a system and hear those conversations and all of this stuff is being thought about and planned for and being put in place. So like with 2018 the business as usual stuff is still happening well that yeah that's good to know um so lots of comments are coming in that are just saying you know expressing thanks for a really interesting talk um so i just want to make sure i um express those across because it's really nice to hear those um those comments coming in um okay so let me just have a look through so many, a lot of questions that are coming in, so it's quite, quite tricky to uh, pick out. Okay, so actually here's another one that's more of a, a comment. Um, and it's really, I suppose this is also pertinent to kind of current workers. Um, someone said, I have a comment, the, the visualization of Tracy's love for her son brought me to tears. And as a public health worker, our families are invested in public health in an indirect way. Um, and we all need to step back from time to time and invest in them too. 
so she's thanking, you know, it's, it's reminded, uh, he or she is, is reminded how much um, they need to know that now. Thank you, um, Tracy. And I guess it raises a question really about, we've all been in this, you know, all been in it together and pulling behind the kind of the, the key workers, the frontline workers, particularly in the NHS. How do you see a danger um, that actually there's going to be this crash that you talked about um, amongst, you know, our, our key workers. Um, and is there something, you know, could there be some proactive intervention to kind of uh, somehow rotate people, you know, get people, get that time off, get that week to do the, the cleaning of, the, or, you know, whatever it is that for particular people, what their thing is to just step away from the front line and recharge because otherwise we're storing up a big kind of healthcare worker disaster further down the line i think everybody is really mindful of this um and and it will happen it's certainly a conversation that is ongoing in terms of workforce well-being both now and you know over the next few months but beyond that in terms of you know making sure that people do get the time out when they need it um and at the moment while we're in the thick of it that time off is going to be few and far between but what I would say to people is to try and take those those magic moments that you have off, because all of us, and um, you know, and many of my colleagues are guilty of this. We're not working with sort of our emails and our phone on, and we're sort of checking with colleagues and just texting to see everything's all right. When you're off, be off. You know, if you have got a day off, and it could be your only day in seven that you're getting off, take it and own it, and really step away because that will really help build your resilience. No one can run seven days a week, even if you're only half in. So even if you just read an email and that's all you do, it's then in your head and you're mulling it over. So until you can take that week off, I know everyone's meant to do that. I know I'm not the only one that loves housework. Um, other people talk about walks and things, but I think that's silly. Just clean your house, it's great. Um, and so as you get to that magic week that you can have off, that's great, but you will get more out of that week if you have taken moments of rest along the way when you can. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's really, I think that's fantastic, um, fantastic words of advice. And I don't know, did, do you feel like that your experience with the whole situation from 2018 and having, you know, gone through that intense period for months and months, uh, have, have you then learned from that then the, the this you know that that extreme need to yeah step away turn the phone off don't engage with things when you are having the day off and does that kind of help you and your team um be able to respond uh yeah in a, in a more efficient way i suppose uh to the current situation yeah um it has it's made me more aware intellectually i think and i think i'll always be someone that's more aware of what other people need what i need um, but I think, well, I know uh, faced with the same situation, I'd probably approach it exactly the same way um, because it, it, it's one of those things that you have to be completely in. Um, but I would make sure that I had those breaks and I did interrupt it. You know, I wouldn't go for many weeks without taking a day off. Um, so in terms of that, I, I would differently, um, but I do think when incidents are happening, it's hard to pull, pull yourself away because of the immediacy of stuff. 
Um, but I hope there would be somebody, well, I know that there'd be somebody alongside me this time telling me to take some time off, which is what I personally would need. I think, I think that's one of the things, as he talked about earlier, about lead, you know, leadership. Um, and Harry mentioned being that leader to actually say to the people, you know, at times, right, you, you know, you need to take that rest, take that break. Um, that's very important. There's a, there's another question here actually that says, um, have you got learning from, you know, your experience in 2018 that you, you can see, you know, hasn't been applied in this situation? Um, uh, is there anything, I don't know, I, don't, I know it's very difficult, you know, these are kind of unprecedented times, um, but there's a, is there anything that um, uh, you think you could bring that hasn't already, yeah, come up that hasn't already um, been able to be applied yet? I think they're very different circumstances. Um, it's hard. It's hard to compare the two. Um, I think what's happening now, certainly from looking at it from a public health uh, place out, um, what's happened with COVID is there is a unity. Um, you know, I, I look at the directors of public health across the country um, and um, the public health regions, um, and there is a unity that comes with that. Similarities, approaches. Um, sets of guidance that people are already here to, um, which is fantastic to see. And so we need that mutual support because although people are experiencing different things, we've all got different levels of transmission. So different areas are, are dealing with different things for sure. Um, but what we what there really is is a, a collective workforce. And I think that if I was back in 2018. Um, I would probably have lifted my head and spoken more to, to my DPH colleagues, um, not for any other reason than to have got that professional support, but within the thick of it, you don't do that. Um, but it is such a supportive network that that would be something different, but it's happening naturally um, through COVID. Um, certainly, I mean, I'm obviously within the Southwest, so I understand that structure a little bit more. And the cohesion that's happening across the public health workforce is incredible. That's that's really positive because it sounds like there is that kind of communication between public health work, workforces so that that, that learning, it sounds like the channels are there so that the, the learning that different people are, are, are having around the country and, and the experience that they bring uh, is able to kind of flow um, uh, between the different you know, public health workforces, which is, uh, yeah, really important. Um, I've got another question here, which is uh, asking for your views on um, non-compliance with public health regulations or regular recommendations. Uh, and it says, in other words, when people make up their own minds about what risks they are happy to take in their lives, um, perhaps any advice on how yeah, how, how we better communicate or, or get people to, you know, adhere to these public um, health recommendations. Compliance is really important. And I think the key message is when you take a risk yourself in terms of non-compliance, you're taking that risk for the people that you're going to come into contact with. Um, and therefore the compliance isn't just there to protect yourself. It's about it's all this comes back to this civil contracting. Mm. We all have a role in protecting each other. So if you can't do it for yourself, then do it for everybody else. Yeah, I think, and, and absolutely. That's the, and, and actually the, 
the messaging uh, that we have at the moment, you know, I'm always hearing adverts on the radio that are talking about, you know, I wash my hands to protect my family. And I think that in Scotland, they had some very effective um, television adverts that were showing, you know, how you can, you might be fine yourself as a young, young person. Um, don't know why I'm pointing at myself for that, uh, but you know, as, a, as, as a younger than me person, but you know, your elderly family and relatives are not, you know, are not going to be okay. And, the, and as you say, it's that message of, we're all kind of protecting each other uh, by complying. Um, I just want to bring in Harry again, just to think, uh, going back to this idea of the, um, the broader kind of public health issues uh, and this idea of, you know, a syndemic and address, uh, addressing existing inequalities. Um, so the, the commission that you are um, co-chairing, Harry, with the, the Lancet and Chatham House uh, on kind of public health post-COVID, um, Presumably, these are exactly the sorts of issues that your commission is going to be um, getting to grips with. Um, yeah, thanks, Matt. Um, we're still working out exactly what we're getting to grips with because um, we're a small commission working over 18 months and we can't do everything. But I suppose the thing that is um, motivating us is that uh, there are some really powerful and important common themes underpinning the three big threats to health that we face. That's the um, uh, environmental emergency, set of environmental emergencies that we face, uh, the current pandemic and any future pandemics, and the existing long-term slow burn epidemic or pandemic of non-communicable diseases, uh, which is kind of getting sidelined at the moment. We've had, I can't remember what the latest figures are, we're, we're up to 1.3, 1.4 million people died globally from COVID-19, but it's over 70 million a year die from non-communicable diseases. And uh, NCDs are largely getting ignored at the moment, but the kinds of things that sit underneath all three of these provide some really powerful opportunities for win-win-win responses. Uh, we've seen a lot of, um, in many cases, I think um, rather naively optimistic talk of build back better uh, because uh, sure, there's been a load of, uh, there's a huge opportunity here, but actually what we're seeing is increasingly is that um, we're getting more cars on the road. Uh, uh, people are saying they're gonna start flying again as soon as they can and so on and so forth. So um, I think we need collectively to take a step back from uh, just looking at what the immediate problems are and think, how are we going to really deal with the, the, the common themes that underpin environmental degradation, pandemics, and non-communicable diseases? And that's things like uh, a hugely dysfunctional food and agricultural system globally that is uh, fundamentally subsidizing unhealthy products, is leading to deforestation, uh, that's generating carbon emissions, it's removing habitats so that animals are coming into closer contact with humans, it's promoting obesity, which makes people more vulnerable to these kinds of diseases. And actually dealing with these things in ways that promote health, uh, in ways that could ultimately benefit the economy as well, uh, is a huge set of challenges that we're certainly not gonna solve with 25,000 words in the Lancet, but um, we're keen to identify them, expose them, and really think through the ways in which we can make clear the kinds of actions that that not only need to happen but reasonably could happen over the short medium and long term i think it sounds it sounds like yeah when you when you put it like that there's this 
whole situation nested within a much broader set of issues um, that are going to have to be addressed that is yeah encompassing all sorts of um, different government departments and different yeah. um, strategies. I, yeah, I mean, I know, I know you're an expert on complex system problems and, uh, uh, and the like, Harry. It sounds like, um, yeah, every time you think you get to the bottom of something, there's just another layer of uh, complexity whereby this, yeah, the kind of global food system feeds into it. But I, yeah, well, yes, but I think um, one of the keys to unlocking all this is um, absolutely not to obfuscate people by um, just throwing complexity at them. Um, and one of the paradoxes of working effectively in complex systems is that actually grappling with that complexity, if you do it well, can simplify things. It can help you to see that what looks like just a mess actually does have some common themes and some common drivers, common actions, and uh, it's possible to see a way through what might just look like a fog. Um, if you try and apply rather more traditional linear ways of thinking about causation, you kind of lose the point. And if you step back from that and see it as a complex system, uh, it, it, it really is bizarre, but it paradoxically can simplify things. But all to, I mean, the risk is that uh, you just obfuscate and you, 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 you get it wrong and you overcomplicate complexify things so it needs to be done well yeah yeah absolutely and I, I, I don't know Tracy does that um, strike a chord with your experience of uh, again dealing with public health more generally that you have you know all of these um, different areas uh, that interlock if you think about like housing um, and yeah food policy and, and, and again these interactions with kind of the choices as, as you set out when you talk that actually we talk about people's lifestyles and actually a lot of the time it's not a choice because yeah if you're choosing between heating and eating um uh, and you or you've got limited food budgets um and so do you um do you recognize that as, as, as harry talks about this kind of actually seeing the whole big picture can actually be very helpful um and, and in paradoxically simplify things uh, as a way to then try and uh, and address these issues that play out then in, in a public health um, outcomes. Yeah, and this isn't a new area. I mean, Dalgren and Whitehead drew their picture of the wider determinants back in 1998 or thereabouts. You know, this this is this concept isn't new. I think we we think about it more sophisticatedly because we have gone into that broader sense because we're bringing um, the environment more into this. Um, but certainly, the conversations that I'm having, um, wider determinants are front and center. And we know that we can't talk about people um, in isolation to where they work and where they go to school and where they live. All of these things have a massive impact on us. It isn't just about quality of housing, but it is about, you know, we talk about deprivation and people always think that's about money. And it isn't always. It can be about um, rural deprivation. It can be about deprivation of access. Um, you know, and is that about where we live or is it about um, our ability to access um, services independently um, or are we making our services suitable for the user rather than suitable for the service? And it's how we think about these things a little bit differently. But the wider determinants and social determinants of health are, are certainly front and centre in every conversation that um, certainly I'm part of. So there is a move, and we talked about this, you know, moments, we talked about this, figures, there is a lot of 
good solid grounding for this information um, so we know that we've got to talk about our communities in the rounds and some people within their context i think that's for me one of the things that from, from everything that you've said this evening and from from harry's um comments as well that's come across very clearly is this is this need to um approach situations in in the round um but also very clearly that sense that you need to get into the communities and, and a kind of ground up um, from the grassroots upwards rather than um, kind of imposing uh, structures from the top and um, yeah going about it that way I think that community engagement and the community buy-in uh, and cohesion is um, very clearly something that's uh, come across for me I think we have had a chance to answer a lot of the questions um, but we're pretty much that's that's the time now so um uh it just remains for me to say um thank you very much again tracy um for a fantastic talk a lot of people yeah as i said a lot of people have put comments in saying um really enjoyed this hour and an hour with tracy is an hour well spent was a comment i particularly uh like that came in um i think we'd all echo that so thank you very much uh, yeah. tracy yeah thank you very much harry as well for your um thoughtful contributions and thank you to everyone uh, who's tuned in and joined us online today. Thank you, Tracy. Thank you, Harry. And thank you, everybody. Thanks very Thanks. much. Good night. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.